Now this evening we come to the next part of our study on the Psalter. No, we have already spent, I think, um, right, three evenings, is it? Two or three evenings, I cannot remember, on the Psalter. And uh, you will remember that we have dealt with the general aspects of the Psalter. We have already looked at the more technical side, the literary aspects, the musical aspects, the psalm titles, and something of the compilation of the of the Psalter's authorship and the authorship of the psalms individually. Now, uh, having ploughed our way through so much that is but the framework and the structure of this wonderful book, we come this evening to the key. I'm not sure yet whether we shall take an outline of the psalm. Uh, because obvious of the obvious uh, nature is so vast. But we, this evening, will spend the time, as the Lord helps us, just on looking at the key to this book of the Psalms. <clears throat> we, I'm afraid we will not be able to go back at all over what we have done. We will start afresh this evening, now looking at it in from the aspect of its meaning. The Hebrew title of the Psalter is different to the title that we have. We have the title of Book of the Psalms. And as we have already explained, a psalm is a composition that was specially written to be sung to accompanied by music. But the Hebrew title of the Psalter immediately introduces us to the key to it. The Hebrew title means simply praises. And it comes from the root word in Hebrew to prostrate oneself or to bow oneself down. This word praises has at its heart the idea of someone prostrating themselves, someone submitting themselves, someone surrendering themselves to God. That is the idea wherever you find it in the word worship in the Old Testament. The thought of an attitude, the thought of uh, a certain posture, if it is only a bowed head, but certainly it is indicative of a spirit that is prostrate before the Lord. It's therefore quite clear that the key to the Psalter is worship. I don't think it needs very much spiritual intelligence to uh, see that the key to the Psalms is worship. It is the expression of true worship by different people at different times, <coughs> under different conditions, in, uh, with differing experiences. But it is the worship of their hearts, their reaction, as they were found in differing uh, backgrounds and going through different types of trials. It is their reaction their attitude that the uh, Psalter expresses. It doesn't matter whether it was in the dark or whether it was in the light. It doesn't matter whether they were sad or whether they were joyful, whether they were prosperous or whether they were poverty-stricken, whether they were victorious or whether they were defeated. Everywhere you turn in the Psalter, you will find that the key is worship. If a person's defeated, we don't think they can worship the Lord. But the Psalter will teach us that you can be defeated and worship the Lord. The Psalter will likewise teach us that when we are sad, sometimes the Lord will get more true worship out of us than when we are very happy. 
That is the most remarkable fact about the Psalter, that it does not matter what kind of experience you are going through, whether it is in a sad vein, or whether it is, to use another word altogether, in a gay vein, the Lord can get real worship from our hearts during that time. I think we might be in, if not all of us, at least some of us, for a surprise when we look at the Psalter in a more unprejudiced and unbiased way, because we shall discover that it is by no means all taken up with uh, uh, lovely sentiments and uh, beautiful phrases. Some people have got the idea that the Psalter uh, is full of, I will extol thee, O God. But it is not so. There are times when the psalmist is doing anything in word, uh, in extolling the Lord. His spirit may be very different. And I think we shall be able, perhaps, if the Lord wills, to look at that. But he, the point is this. Whether it is in the dark experiences, or whether it is in the light experiences, a kind of character is exposed in the Psalter, which can only be described as worship. Uh, it is surely most instructive that the book which is the heart of our Bible occupies the central position of our Bible and is after all taken just from a purely literary point of view a long uh, book that, it sh that its theme and one theme should be worship. That the Lord should have as it were placed into the central position of the scriptures, a book which goes to the very heart of everything. I believe, and I'm sure all of you believe, that we were created to worship God. That's not just a little trite uh, spiritual idea, a Christian or religious idea. The point is this, that our very spiritual health, and in many cases, our mental and physical health, depends upon whether we learn to worship the Lord or not. We are so constituted as human beings that we have got to worship something. And I believe that is why in, this, in two or three places in the psalm, the worship of the Lord is contrasted with the worship of idols. Man has got to worship something. If it's not gold or silver or bricks and stone, then it must be people or it must be himself. Either it's his own ego, or it is some friend, or some relationship, or something else. But he must bow down to something, because he has been so constructed, he has been so constituted, that he is a worshipping creature. Humanity is a worshipping creation of God. At its very heart, God put the principle of worth, worship, uh, I don't think we can go any farther along that line tonight. But you see, the center of the Bible is occupied with revealing to us the nature of worship. In the beginning of the Bible, we have God setting out to lead us into true worship, in which alone we should find a right kind of self-fulfillment. The end of the Bible is a description of, of a, a redeemed world, a redeemed creation in absolute and utter worship before God. The heart of the Bible is taken up with this whole question of worship, its nature. Have we really sufficiently realized that worship is the key to life? And not, I mean, just uh, when we are in the mood, as we say. Uh, I fear that many of us only worship the Lord when we are in the mood. Or we only worship the Lord when we are happy. Or when we have a sufficiently big enough blessing to feel that it warrants a little bit of worship. Many, many Christians have got this idea about worship. 
Lord, give me a blessing and I will worship thee. Give me a bigger blessing and I'll worship thee in a slightly greater way. Overwhelm me with blessing and I'll be on my face before thee in worship. That's the idea so common amongst us, if not deliberately, certainly in an unconscious, subconscious way. Have we sufficiently realized that worship is not a, in its first place anything to do with whether we are happy or unhappy, but is really a spiritual attitude that lies behind of every kind of experience through which we might pass? I wonder whether we have realized that worship is the key to our lives. This the Psalter most clearly teaches us. You have here, ranging over some thousand or more years, people of all different types, temperaments, backgrounds, upbringings, classes, from the king himself down to some very much more humble and ordinary person. They are going through all kinds of experiences, and the result we find in every kind of experience is that their reaction was to worship the Lord. They betrayed a kind of character. They betrayed a kind of spirit that can only be described as worship. They found the key to themselves and the key to their problems as they worshipped the Lord. We have not got the time this evening to look at this in the Psalter, but you will discover again and again little things like, Then saw I. And you remember that wonderful psalm? The psalmist says that he, he was oh so very depressed and then all of a sudden he says, I, I thought to myself, this is my infirmity. I, I, will, I will remember the years at the right hand of the Most High and then he bursts into song because he suddenly dis discovers that his depression has gone. And in another place, another, psalm, another writer says something like this. He says, I don't understand it, Lord. Uh, the world seems to be upside down, and so does thy economy. Uh, the, the, the wicked seem to be on top, and the righteous seem to be uh, right under. And then all of a sudden he says, Then went I into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then saw I and understood I. You see, it is really a question that of these different ones discovering that worship, uh, a kind of attitude uh, in their life, uh, was the key to themselves. Uh, they discovered that somehow they unlocked things inside of them, their attitude to things, how they reacted. You could put one person in a set of circumstances and completely devastate them. But you can put another person with a different attitude into those very same circumstances and somehow that makes them. Somehow or other, because there is a difference inside of them, the circumstances, instead of, instead of devastating them and destroying them, actually produce something in them. Now, what the Psalter was trying to teach us is this, that we've got to be led by the Holy Spirit into such dealings by the Holy Spirit with us that we can be led into these trials and into these experiences. We will not at all times be frothy and happy by any means at all. Uh, there will be times when we shall be crushed, but we shall be led into these experiences and we shall be led through these experiences because there is something inside of us which is giving the Lord his rights. If we could understand that, we shall understand a tremendous amount. You see, the Psalter is not a collection of beautifully worded songs. Um, just mere eloquence, mere poetry, as so many people think of it. They think that the Psalter is just um, the expression of rather poetic people, if I may use a modern-day uh, illustration, of the type of Amy Carmichael. They feel, well, uh, that's the Psalter. A certain poetic, artistic type of person has somehow or other expressed themselves. Uh, it's just poetry. It's just poetic imagination. It is just uh, an artistic way of putting it. But it is not that. Maybe in many cases, of course, um, there was a certain amount of poetic temperament uh, behind the way that it was expressed, a certain amount of poetic imagination. But we must not think that it is mere poetic imagination. 
and mere poetic artistry. Uh, these psalms have been wrung out of deep experience and in some cases agonized experience. We have read a psalm tonight in which a man was nearly beside himself. You don't usually sit down and write a poem with, beginning with, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's putting into, into black and white something, some feeling of a man when he's near to suicide, when he's near to the end, when he's outside of himself, when circumstances have got to the point where he just cannot understand any longer, even he sees even the Lord in, in a dark light. Do you understand what I'm getting at? You see, uh, the, this Psalter has been wrung out of, of experience. Um, it's not just people sitting down in, in nice studies. Uh, and sort of deciding that they are going to put uh, a nice little thought uh, into black and white and into a poetic form. These psalms, as you will see from many of their titles, which link them with historic events, you will see that they have been wrung out of the most painful and the most ang uh, situations of real anguish. Then again, you will learn from that, I'm sure, that worship, in its most elementary form, is not anything to do with the lip at all. Uh, it is not to do with the lip, primarily. Worship is, first of all, to do with life and character. And we must lay that foundation stone at the beginning. These psalms came out of real, inwrought experience of the Lord. And before ever they got into black and white, before ever they came into the form that we have them, before ever they were sung by countless thousands of the people of God under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant, they were first of all produced in the crucible of people's experience. There it was beaten out, it was hammered out. Somehow or other something was developed in and at last, perhaps, in some cases, probably quite suddenly, and other cases, probably after months, perhaps years, they committed something into writing. I don't believe by any means that the whole Psalter just came into being, people suddenly getting an idea one hour and putting it down the next hour. In some cases, I'm quite sure that some of this has, was the result of years. Some of David's psalms are undoubtedly. Uh, the result of years. Psalm 37, for instance, is very probably the result of many years thought, many years thought, uh, and reflection and meditation that finally got down into black and white and was, was given to us as part of our heritage. So you see, um, we must see straight away that worship is not primarily to do with our lips. It is to do with our life and with our character. It is therefore not a cheap and easy thing. Worship is not like that. You may get many people seemingly praising the Lord, professing uh, the Lord in so many words, but um, that's not worship. The Lord alone can distinguish what is worship. And when the Lord gets worship from his people, then it's something that satisfies his heart, something that reaches his heart. Hmm? So, you see, it's not easy, it's not cheap, because it comes out of experience. You know, when a person worships the Lord, you don't just suddenly, he doesn't just suddenly decide to get on his knees and do it. You know, it says in the scripture that no man can call the Lord Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I know many people who call the Lord Lord, and they don't call him by the, by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean? It means simply this, that that life has been in the hands of the Holy Spirit and has been devastated in the hands of the Holy Spirit. Something's happened inside of that life which has made it utterly painful for them, naturally. But they have learned to call him Lord and mean it. The Satan has done a terrible work in our natural constitution so that we cannot call the Lord Lord and mean it. Many, many Christians, Christians, don't know anything about the Lordship of Christ. 
because they have never known what it is to be in the hands of the Holy Spirit and therefore to be able to call the Lord Lord in a way that means Lord. And you can only do that by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does something else. We can call him Lord. Then when he's Lord, he is Lord. Our time is at his disposal. Our money is at his disposal. Our homes are at his disposal. Our families are at his disposal. Our friends are at his disposal. Everything is at his disposal. Soon finds us out. Many of us don't know anything about the Lordship of Christ when it comes down to it in practical terms because we determine everything ourselves. We call him Lord. We sing about him as Lord. We, when we pray, we address him as Lord. But uh, it is not by the Spirit. When the, when the Father hears someone call the Lord Jesus Lord, and it means something to the Father, the Father ratifies it. The Father recognizes it as true. He says, that's right. That man is saying, that woman is saying, by the Spirit of God. So you can see that it is not an easy, not a cheap thing. If we look here, we shall discover that this is quite in keeping with all that we have in uh, the New Testament. For instance, if you look at John 4 and verse 24, we read this. God is Spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. This word truth just means reality. We, we have to, he says, John, Jesus says, God is spirit. Those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in reality. Hmm? You see, it really simply means that the natural man can only naturally worship. His worship is natural. The spiritual man can only spiritually worship. Uh, if you look at Philippians uh, 3, and um, I think it's verse 3. Yes, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ. You have no confidence in the flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. What does that all mean? You turn back to Romans uh, 12, and I think you have it all summed up uh, very wonderfully there. We have once or twice mentioned this. Romans 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Or, as we have sometimes put it, your spiritually intelligent worship. So now we understand. Worship is first of all to do with life and character. That's the point. And the Psalter everywhere from beginning to end teaches us that there is no such thing as worship which does not begin with our life and with our character in the hands of the Holy Spirit. It is the question of worshipping God in spirit. And that means the flesh has got to be dealt with. We have no confidence in the flesh. Everyone has got confidence in the flesh. They might say, they might dither, they might seem to be very modest and very humble when it comes to something like playing the piano or doing something in public or speaking. They might blush when you speak to them. But in actual fact, they've got as much confidence in the flesh as the assertive person and the ambitious person has. The flesh is still there. It's part of their life. What happens to a man when he loses confidence in his flesh? It needs a very deep work for such a thing. It is called in the scripture spiritual circumcision. Something happens which, which changes the man. It's the work of the cross through the Holy Spirit. And so you see this living sacrifice being offered up as a living sacrifice is spiritually intelligent worship. It doesn't just come out of a sudden emotional desire. It comes out of spiritual intelligence. You sit down, you count the cost, and you offer yourself up, just like Abraham counted the cost, deliberately took his son, and went up <coughs> Mount Moriah, and was ready to offer him up. That's a living sacrifice. That's worship. So, there we are. That teaches us something about worship then we ought to note the very real connection 
between the life and the lip. Once, primarily, we have got a deep experience, then it's expressed in word. I think this is a thing that we tend sometimes to forget. If you look, for instance, um, at Romans 10.9, you have this link uh, made. <coughs> Romans 10.9, Because thou shalt confess with thy mouth Jesus as Lord, and shalt believe in thy heart. And then, if you turn over to um, Matthew 12, you read this. Matthew 12, 34, ye offspring of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The good man out of his good treasure bringeth forth good things, and the evil man out of his evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. And I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account of, count thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. It's quite clear from other references also in the New Testament that there is a very real connection between the lip and the life. A very real connection. And some people ought to take note of that. For some people seem to think they can say anything and get away with it. You can't get away with it. It says in Scripture quite clearly, for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. That should be true of worship. It's one thing first to recognize that it's got to be a deep work of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But it's another thing to recognize that it's got to come out into the open. Something's got to come out. Uh, as the Lord Jesus said in another place here, only that which is inside of a man can come out. Nothing that you take from outside can defile him. Only that which is inside can defile him. That's the point. And uh, I think it is generally safe to say that if a person never praises the Lord with their lips, there is no worship in their lives. Uh, worship, as in all things, does find expression in words. There is a connection with the word. And that is why the Psalter was written. If they'd all been like some of us, it would never have been written at all, because it would have all been silent. But it's not silent. It's meant to get out into the open. And there is a lot of reason why it's meant to get out into the open. Not only in the vindication of God and testimony, but instruction and encouragement to others as well. So we see straight away that this whole question of worship is something which goes right to the root of our lives and, a root, and to the root of many of our problems. On the board... Um, very roughly, we have put just a few of the different experiences that are portrayed in the Psalms. Um, I say there are only a few, they are just a very few, and um, uh, not a very good selection. But if we just look at some of them, if you take the, open your Bible at the Psalms, we look at some of them, I think we shall begin to understand something of what worship really is. For instance, let's begin with the first. Joy. Here's someone who's very joyful. And it's good now and again to meet someone who's full of joy. Uh, Psalm 98 is full of joy. Just listen to it. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song, for he's done marvellous things. His right hand and his holy arm have brought salvation for him. The Lord hath made known his salvation. His righteousness hath he openly showed in the sight of the nations. He hath remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness toward the house of Israel. And so it goes on when it comes to the end. You see, it says, Let the sea roar in the fullness thereof, and the world and they that dwell therein. Let the floods clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he cometh to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. <clears throat> That expresses joy. There's not a note of sorrow in it. There's not a, not a dark note in it. It's all light. It's someone who's absolutely full of joy. What their experience was, we are not really absolutely clear. But what we do know is that they worshipped the Lord because they were so full of joy. And then you'll find triumph 
these, of course, are, there are so many psalms of joy, of course, I might say. I mean, that's not just one. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of psalms of joy in the Psalter. Then another large uh, section of the psalms are to do with triumph. And we find that in 47 as a good example. It's like the one on joy, and joy but it's just that little bit different. Oh, clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is terrible. He is a great king over all the earth. He subdueth peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooseth our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loved. The, this psalm is full of joy, but it has the note of war in it. It talks of um, shields. The shields of the earth belong to the Lord. It talks of warfare. And it talks of triumph, triumph in warfare. This is, this is uh, in expressive of a large number of the psalms that uh, are full of triumph. Here, the nation triumphed, and someone put it into song. And then, elation, for want of a better word. I don't really know what the difference between joy and elation is. Um, but if you look at 148... You will find just uh, another psalm, which is a little different from the other two. It's just simply, shall I say, it's not quite so full of exuberance, the first, but it's full of elation. Praise ye the Lord, or hallelujah. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise ye him, all his angels. Praise ye him, all his hosts. That's a wonderful uh, psalm of jubilation. And then you get another kind of psalm altogether. You turn to Psalm 102 and you will find immediately that you're in a very different atmosphere altogether and it's the only representative of a very large number of the psalms. You turn to 102, we find here is a prayer, it says in the title, a prayer of the afflicted. When he is overwhelmed, the poor without his complaint to the Lord, before the Lord. This is a psalm of sorrow. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry come unto thee. Hide not thy face from me in the day of my distress. Incline thine ear unto me. In the day when I call, answer me speedily. For my days consume away like smoke, and my bones are burned as a firebrand. My heart is smitten like grass and withered, for I forget to eat my bread. My re by reason of the voice of my groaning, my bones cleave to my flesh. I am like a pelican of the wilderness. I am become as an owl of the waste places. I watch and am become like a sparrow that is alone upon the housetop. Very beautiful expression of sorrow and loneliness. Um, this man has uh, in his present experience, there's none, uh, no jubilation. Uh, there's no, no deity in the psalm. Uh, there's no, what we could call, triumph in the sense of the other psalm that we read. But you see, he goes on, But thou, Lord, wilt abide forever, and thy memorial name unto all generations. Thou wilt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for it is time to have pity upon her. Yea, the set time is come. For a moment, the psalmist rises into a, a song of testimony. Only, I'm afraid, to sink back. Again, in verse 23, he weakened my strength in the way he shortened my days. I said, oh, my God, take me not away in the midst of my days, and so on. But there's an underlying current, you see, which can only be described as worship. <coughs> Some people wouldn't describe this psalm as worship, but I believe it's pure worship. Here is a man who's in deep sorrow, but he's not lost his faith. Indeed, the whole psalm is eloquent in, in his faith and trust in the Lord. In spite of his experience, he's really trusting the Lord. And then you come to a psalm like 142. You have to move these, through these, I think, a little more swiftly. Psalm 142 is this psalm of an afflicted man. We don't know how exactly he was afflicted, except that he says that the Lord knew his path and knew that he was walking faithfully, and everything's gone wrong. It doesn't matter what he's done, 
everything has gone wrong. But you know, he ends up this little psalm with this little word, Thou wilt deal bountifully with me. You see, that's worship. Then again, I'm afraid we turn to 79 and we find a psalm of defeat. Oh God, the nations are coming to thine inheritance. A tragic psalm of how the nations have, have come in, how they've hacked down Jerusalem, how they've ravaged the house of God. You see, a sad psalm of defeat. But listen how he finishes. He says, So we thy people and sheep of thy pasture will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. His confidence was, this isn't the end. We are defeated. We are absolutely at the mercy of the enemy. But this is not the end. We were, it's not the end. You see, he says, we will show forth thy praise to all generations. Do you realize that his psalm is exactly that? It's shown forth the praise of that particular man or that particular group to all generations. What he said would happen has happened. It's been fulfilled. And then you find depression. I might say the saddest psalm, one that Spurgeon said, was so filled with gloom that it upset him. 88. Psalm 88, there's not a single ray of hope in the psalm. It doesn't matter where you look, where you turn, there's no ray of hope in the psalm. It's the only psalm in the Psalter in which there isn't a single ray of light. O Lord, the God of my salvation, I cry day and night before thee. Let my prayer enter into thy presence. Incline thine ear unto my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and so it goes on. Right the way through, ends on the same note, lover and friend, to thou put far from me and mine acquaintance into darkness. It's sad. But you know, there's one, there is a ray of light. It may not be seen in the psalm. Mm. The whole psalm is addressed to the Lord. He cannot praise the Lord with words. He cannot put a single word into thanksgiving. He feels so terrible. And yet all the way through, he speaks of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. You may not think of that as worship, but the Lord got something out of that man or woman. Something there has satisfied the heart of God in that person, that one's experience. Then again, from depression... You will turn to many other kinds of psalms. If you turn to Psalm 8, you'll find one of meditation, one that we all know quite well. Um, o Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hath set thy glory upon the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou established strength. It's a meditation. Quite calm quite peaceful, it's a reflection upon things. No doubt this man has had just as real experience as anyone else, but at the time of writing this psalm, he is able to just sit down at ease, and he's able to think. And as he reflects, something comes to him. You've got many psalms of meditation like this, and they're worship, they're psalms of true worship. 37, Psalm 37, which is a great favourite of so many, because of its, it's so full of helpfulness, especially in its opening verses, is one of instruction. Here, the psalmist has put down something full of instruction. Where did he learn all these things? Only surely from his own experience. Put not thyself because of the evildoer, and so on. Neither be thou envious against the worker of unrighteousness, for they shall soon be cut down, and so on. See, trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land. Delight thyself also in the Lord, shall give thee the desires of thine heart, commit thy way unto him, and so on. You see? He, he had learnt something uh, there. And then again, uh, 46 is a psalm of trust. Evidently they were in trouble here. Uh, it says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore will we not fear, though the earth do change, and though the mountains be shaken into the hearts of the sea. There was something there that was happening, evidently, a bit devastating all around. But the psalmist's reaction to this was, we will not fear. We don't care what happens. Let's let the whole thing be shaken. Let it all slide into the sea. We don't care. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad the city of God. We have 
uh, heavenly supply, he says. It's all right, trust. And there are many signs of trust. And they're wonderful. Then, you see, you have peace. Uh, Psalms, just breathe peace. 19, Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day unto the speech, and night unto night knowledge. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. You see, that's peace. The psalm is one of peace. But now you will find uh, a quite different dark vein. For instance, have you ever thought that there are psalms of agitation? I know that's a word that perhaps we ought not to use, but there are psalms of agitation. Let me turn you to a psalm that I think is one of agitation. 42. This, the peace isn't here. The peace is gone. There may be inward peace, but the peace outside is all fled. Listen. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say unto me, Where is thy God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me. How I went with the throng and led them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, a multitude keeping holy day. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him who is the help of his countenance. I think that's the psalm of agitation. If you go on, you'll find it's more and more he remembers things. He gets more agitated, actually, as he remembers things. Deep calleth unto deep, but the noise of thy waterfalls, all thy waves and thy billows are gone over me. And then he begins to see a little light. And he speaks of the loving kindness of the Lord in the daytime and his song in the night, and so on. But you see, it's a, it's a psalm of agitation. Psalm 42 and 43 are full of agitation. The man's quite anxious, he's worried, he can't understand what's happened, what's gone wrong. So he pours it all out, but it's worship. What a wonderful expression it was when he said, for I shall yet praise the Lord. He didn't feel he could praise the Lord at that time. But he said, for I shall yet praise the Lord. That was worship. The man got through. He got one step further in some ways than the, than the brother, whoever it was, who wrote Psalm 88. He didn't get to that point. But whoever wrote Psalm 42... Uh, the sons of Korah, well, they got to that step. They said, we shall get praise the Lord. Then, you see, if you look at a psalm of conflict, 74 is a psalm of conflict. <coughs> oh God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why doth thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation which thou hast gotten of old, which thou hast redeemed to be the tribe of thine inheritance, and Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. And then if you read on, it's a terrible story of, uh, of conflict. The whole psalm is set in the midst of terrible conflict. But there's worship there. You look at verse 12. Yet God is my king of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. That's worship. Here's a man who's just seen the temple uh, nearly destroyed, if you read through it. He's seen the heathen come into the inheritance of God, but he's, he's quite calm. He says that, that he knows the Lord, and the Lord will work salvation. And um, I'm sorry, that's not confident. That's complaint. That's right. He's full of complaint. Uh, he says, why, 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 why? And yet, in the midst of it all, he, he gives vent to his trust in the Lord. I don't believe that we should not complain at times. I know that we always say you ought not to complain. We must be careful of murmuring. We must be careful of rebelling against the ways and the feelings of the Lord. But there's a different thing being like Moses, who went into the presence of the Lord and said, Why? And it's different like Job, who went to the Lord and said, Why? You see, here's a man who's, who's got a big why. And he says to the Lord, why? Hmm? Some of us would learn a lot more if we only said why. Ask the Lord why he did certain things and why he allows certain things. We'd learn. That's the basis of learning. 
conflict is in Psalm 2, actually, one that we all know very well. It's a very wonderful psalm. But, you know, it's set in the midst of conflict. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's the psalm of conflict. A wonderful testimony of assurance but it's a psalm of conflict and so you see we can go on I've called Psalm 27 a psalm of light the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear now that's full of warfare but you see the psalmist is dwelling in light he's not a least bit afraid he says well, he doesn't mind who comes to encamp against him he doesn't worry he says we're all right the Lord will keep us in the secret of his pavilion and then again, I've called Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A psalm of, of union. See, the whole psalm breathes peaceful union. The psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See? He goes on to speak of a table prepared in the presence of his enemies, his head anointed with oil. It's all union. And then we find righteousness now that's the kind of psalm perhaps that some of us uh, are not perhaps very well acquainted with hear the right O lord attend unto my cry and he says to the lord why hmm? some of us would learn a lot more if we only said why ask the lord why he did certain things and why he allows certain things we'd learn that's the basis of learning Conflict is in Psalm 2, actually, one that we all know very well. It's a very wonderful psalm, but, you know, it's set in the midst of conflict. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. That's the psalm of conflict. It's a wonderful testimony of assurance, but it's a psalm of conflict. And so, you see, we can go on. I've called Psalm 27 a psalm of light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, that's full of warfare, but you see, the psalmist is dwelling in light. He's not a least bit afraid. He says, well, he doesn't mind who comes to encamp against him. He doesn't worry. He says, we're all right. The Lord will keep us in the secret of his pavilion. And then again, I've called Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A psalm of, of union. See, the whole psalm breathes peaceful union. The psalmist says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. See? He goes on to speak of a table prepared in the presence of his enemies, his head anointed with oil. It's all union. And then we find righteousness now that's the kind of psalm perhaps that some of us uh, are not perhaps very well acquainted with hear the right o lord attend unto my cry perhaps we don't feel we ought to do that kind of thing well the trouble is that many of us do it in public instead of with the lord but you see this is a private personal cry of david he establishes his righteousness with the lord he says to the Lord, I'm not guilty of these things that people are saying. That's all. I'm not guilty. If you read through this psalm, you will find that he uh, is establishing his righteousness. Now, this is very remarkable, really. But it's uh, so. There are quite a few psalms in which David says that his hands are clean, and he has not done this, and he's not done that, and he's not done the other, and his conscience is all right with the Lord. And then Psalm 18 is a psalm of deliverance. And there are many of these psalms that, that are full of deliverance. The Lord delivered and they're full of worship because he's delivered. It was the day when David was finally delivered from all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. A psalm of deliverance. But you know, you come right up against those last psalms I've put there, which are right over against these, in a dark vein. And there are many of them Psalm 13 is, is representative of many. A uh, psalm full of darkness. See, the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, wilt thou forget me forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart? All the day. How long, how long? All the time. 
It's full of darkness. He just feels that there's no light. He can't understand. He doesn't see anything. He's in the dark. Then you will find a psalm of forsakenness. Well, we read that psalm. Do you realize that that psalm was human experience? That's human experience. Well, we know that there, we know, I know there are schools of thought on this. Uh, there are some who would have us believe that the, that the writer just simply said all kinds of things which were not really true of himself, which is in some sense is true, uh, in the sense that he was prophesying it, but I believe it came out of his own experience. It was wrung out of something inside. We shall look at that in just one moment. But you see, that's forsakenness. So he just feels absolutely forsaken by all and everyone. And then you've got repentance. And there are many psalms like Psalm 51 that speak of repentance. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Now, isn't that strange? On the one side, you have psalms establishing righteousness. On the other side, you have psalms like, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, Psalm 42. And this one, Psalm uh, 51, and many others that speak of sin and, and repentance and contrition over failure and sin. And then, of course, judgment. Psalm 137 is perhaps the best um, psalm that's representative of that group of psalms not deliverance, but judgment. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst thereof we hanged up our hearts, for there they that led us captive required of us songs, and they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Now, some of you might think, that's very wrong. They should have got this. They should have been there having a time of real worship. I don't think so at all. I believe that that expression was true worship in the eyes of God. If they'd sat down and sung a few songs there, I don't think it would have meant nearly as much as hanging up their hearts on the willows and saying, Oh, Lord, how can we do it in this alien atmosphere? You see, for years, for generations, for centuries, the Lord had tried to make his people see that their heritage was the promised land. And the house of God was the heart of their life as a people, his dwelling place. And they despised it. And so the exile was a judgment. And now they accept the judgment. And for the first time, his people, they've, they've learned the bitter lesson. They don't want to sing. All they want to do is to get back to the land, you see. They want to get back, they've learned their lesson. I believe that was true worship, more true to the Lord than much other worship that took place in preceding generations in the land by people who really were despising their birthright. You see, that's worship. No song, and no triumphant note of thanksgiving and praise, but it was worship. Now, that just shows you the range of worship. Do you see? Oh, what a range of worship there is there. And, of course, that's but the scantiest survey. We could all add so many other psalms expressing other moods uh, and so on. But these are just a few, just to show you the wide range in the Psalter um, in which they worship the Lord. Um, there are some other points we'd like to make. What we really want to say is this, that even when words of praise are absent, there might be an attitude of worship. There are times when we just can't form the words of praise, when we just can't somehow praise uh, in that way, but you know there can be a spirit of, of worship that can be as real and as true to the Lord as anything else. There are times when even the Lord himself is silent in his love over us. And then again, I think another fact that we ought to learn from this, and I think we shall probably end with this point this evening, 
we must note that everywhere in the Psalter, the Lord is the head and the heart. And the most, re most remarkable fact about the Psalter is that it doesn't matter what experience it is, it leads you to the Lord. It doesn't matter if it's like Psalm 88, absolute dirge, full of deepest gloom, but it leads you to the Lord. All the time, the psalmist is speaking of the Lord, addressing the Lord, bringing the Lord into the picture, relating his present depression to the Lord. It doesn't matter where you turn the Psalter, the Lord is the head and the heart of it. If you took him away, there's just the Psalter doesn't exist. Uh, he is everything. Do you know that the Lord's names, the titles of God, are found in the Psalms 1,286 times. They're unbelievable. Everywhere throughout the Psalter we find in nearly every verse, every part of it leads us directly to the Lord. Now what does that teach us? It teaches us one thing. We can never really worship the Lord until we have abandoned ourselves to his lordship. Until we have abandoned ourselves to his being our, our lord, our head, and our life. Worship is in its very primary stages until we have owned the lordship of Christ and until the Lord has become our life. When we can start to say that without Christ our life would completely collapse, We've started to worship. Because it's only when the Lord becomes the Lord of our lives and the very substance of our lives that we begin to know the true character and nature of worship. When we abandon ourselves to him, whatever the cost or whatever the way he's going to choose to do something in us, that might mean a lot to us. But once we're prepared for him to take us along any path, so long as he can conform us to the image of his son, so long as he can get something in us, once we're abandoned to the Lord like that, we have started to know what it is to worship him. You must all realize that to, to really uh, know the Lord like that, for the Lord to become our life, uh, is necessitates very deep experience. Indeed. Uh, the Psalms are only a description of some of the experiences that the Lord leads us through to bring us to the place of intimate union and communion with him. I think it's also worthy of note that the Psalter teaches us that there can be no true worship of the Lord if we dwell on experiences or blessings as such. It is a most remarkable fact in the Psalter that nowhere do you find people dwelling on the experiences. For instance, Psalm 68 is all to do with being delivered from Egypt. Yet, in no place does it dwell upon the deliverance as a deliverance. It goes immediately back to the Lord and says, speaks of him as being blessed be the Lord who's done this for us. To them, their deliverance was somehow related intimately with the Lord. It wasn't something in itself. You see, they couldn't be saved without the Lord. And they would say, as we would, that Jesus is our salvation. He is himself our salvation. See? It, it brings us light into that position. Many of us can't praise the Lord because we feel we either haven't had a, a new experience or we haven't had a new blessing. Uh, so we feel we can't bless the Lord. But that's uh, altogether wrong. Uh, Really, it's a question of our relationship to the Lord, permanent relationship to the Lord, which is the basis of our worship. Every experience and blessing should lead us to dwell on the Lord, into fresh worship. Now, this is all wonderfully portrayed in what we call the Messianic Psalms. Um, let's just look at these Psalms that portray the Messiah. Um, we begin at the very beginning of the Psalter, very rapidly. We won't, we're not going to read psalm after psalm. We're just going to look at psalms. Just a verse or two here and there. 
Psalm 2, you will all know, I think, from the book of Acts, is a messianic psalm. It's all to do with the Lord Jesus and his resurrection and exaltation. You know that. You look then at Psalm 16, verse 10 and 11. For thou wilt not leave my soul to Sheol, or Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. Remember the Lord Jesus? That was a reference to the Lord Jesus uh, in his death and in his burial. Then 22, we read uh, 22, this amazing psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The very words of the Lord Jesus. And then in verse 7 and 8, All they that see me laugh and scorn, they shoot out the lip, they shake the head, saying, he trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him rescue him, seeing he delighteth in him. And then 14, see, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. What a strange thing for a person going through an experience today. But it's exactly true of the Lord Jesus. Crucifixion does just that. It, it, it doesn't break a bone, but it pulls every bone in the body out of joint. And then 16, verse 16, for dogs have compassed me. Company of evildoers, they pierce my hands and my feet. I may count all my bones. They look <clears> and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and upon my vesture do they cast lots. And verse 22 in Hebrews is spoken of the words as in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I praise thee. The word assembly is the same word as church. In the midst of the church, well, I praise thee. Then Psalm 24 is another messianic psalm. Who can go up into the hill of the Lord? And then it goes on about lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors. And then you go on Psalm 40. Six to eight. I leave that to you. You know that the Lord Jesus referred to the Lord Jesus, sacrifice. And offering thou hast no delight in mine ear hast thou opened. And then 55 speaks of his betrayal. 55, 12 and 13. For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did mag but neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hidden myself from him. But it was thou a man my <coughs> equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We took sweet counsel together. We walked in the house of God with the throng. Verse 20. He hath put forth his hands against such as were at peace with him. He hath profaned his covenant. His mouth was smooth as butter, but his heart was warm. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. And then you look at 68. Verse 18, thou hast ascended on high, thou hast led cap away captives, thou hast received gifts among men. You see, that in Ephesians is a reference. 69, and verse 4, they that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. See? And 6, verse 6, let not them that wait thee be put to shame. Because for thy sake I've borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. And twenty and twenty-one, reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. I looked for some to take pity, but there was none for comforters. But I found they gave me also gall for my food, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. So we could go on. There are many other messianic psalms, 72, 110, 118, and many others. Those are just a few that are the most obvious. Prophecy. Now, what do those teach us? They teach us simply this. If you, if you look into the context of these verses, you will discover that they could not possibly all refer to the Lord Jesus. For in quite a number, it speaks the writer speaks of himself as being utterly sinful, as being full of iniquity. And yet, in the very next verse, he suddenly becomes the portrayal of the Messiah. Suddenly, in his experience, one moment, he's in the depths of his own personal human experience. 
the next minute he has suddenly become a prophet, as it were. And he portrays the life and death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, what do you think about that? I think it would be very interesting to hear your comments on that, how you would feel uh, about that. Would you feel that, that these men just said these things and didn't understand? Or do you think that out of their own experience, something was wrung out of them which had a far fuller, deeper, more wonderful significance than they, than they knew themselves? I think that. I think that these men were in the crucible of experience. They were so abandoned to the Lord. They had so owned the Lordship of God in their lives. He had become so very truly their life that they could they were absolutely identified with the Lord to the point that they could portray him in their experiences. But I think we shall leave that there this evening. But you know, uh, when you think back to the writers, the psalmists, you know it took them through some pretty grueling experiences to be so identified with the Lord that they could portray him. Uh, that's the key, I think, uh, to real worship, identification with the Lord. To be so one with him to be so abandoned to him, for him to become our very life, so that we become the portrayal of the Lord Jesus. Now, in their day, under the old covenant, <coughs> I believe that those saints foreshadowed the Lord Jesus. We, under the new covenant, are on the same principle in many ways, but in a different with a different aspect and approach, we become also the expression of the Lord Jesus. Our experience, we can be led into experiences, deep experiences, in which we, for the first time, can understand the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you've ever had any experiences like that, where when you go through, you begin to understand the Lord Jesus in a way that you never understood him before. If you've ever been betrayed, you've never known treachery. We apologise to the listener, but the end of side two is missing from the master tape.